please give a huge Ledbury welcome to Thomas Dilworth. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I think what I would prefer is if you have questions, I'll try to have answers. And we can do this right from the start and continue, and it'll be a lively, vital experience. But I promise not to read you a lecture. Uh, if you want, I can talk a little bit about David Jones first, but does anyone have a question? Uh, well, I won't talk about my life. It's not interesting. I was interested in modernism. I went to a teacher who wasn't teaching modernism, but was teaching the great war poets. Half of the, the, the year-long class was on in parenthesis. When I first read it, I hated it. And on second reading, I thought, my god, this is wonderful. And my thesis director knew David Jones, so in 1971-72, we met up in London and went to Harrow and met him. And he was so impressive. Uh, he spoke about what he cared about deeply. He spoke with powerful emotion. And he was the most af affectionate male I'd ever met. And, and uh, I was there when a young woman a daughter of a friend of his was there, and he was twice as warm. <laughs> uh, so uh, I went on working on him because partly I trusted the man. You know, he was, he's not like those authors who w w write wonderful works but are difficult people. Instead, he was a wonderful man with more friends than anyone I've ever known about after Edward Lear. Um, but his works are difficult. And I had a, a student who was a really good poet in a, in a class where I taught in parenthesis, and she hated it. And uh, a fellow student of hers said, well, you, you maybe should reread it. And she was on a long train ride, and she did reread it because it was the only book she had on the train. And though she, 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 as a result, she, was, she felt like giving up writing poetry. Because how could anyone write anything so beautiful, so moving, so grand, as in parenthesis? So if you read in parenthesis, you find it difficult. And this is even truer of the anathemata. You're not finished reading it. You've got to try to reread it. Um, why, is, why is in parenthesis difficult? I think, well, first, first of all, let me say, in parenthesis has huge praise. Um, Auden said it was the greatest literary work to emerge from the First World War. Richard Howard, the historian, the war historian, says it's the greatest literary work to emerge from either world war. Adam Thorpe, the fiction writer and poet, said that it's the greatest work on war in English. Auden said that David Jones does for the British and Germans what Homer did for the Greeks and Trojans. Oh, good, I, I, I'm all dry. 
Um, that's pretty high praise. If I'm shaky, it's not because I'm nervous. I have Parkinson's disease. If, if, how many people have read in parentheses? Or read in it? Okay. How many the anathema? Okay. If any of you are tempted to try it, reading the anathema, email me, um, and I'll send you 50 pages that ought to be a great help with it. Um, it's, I'm at Dilworth at uwindsor.ca. Um, you could probably find that out without having to remember it. So why is in parenthesis so difficult? I think in, in parenthesis, I'll answer that question, but first I want to say that David Jones is a kind of model for the few of us who find life difficult. And you can't get very old before friends die and diseases happen and, and uh, life draws on us fortitude and courage and patience. And Jones was a great model of this because he suffered terribly emotionally. Uh, as a result of the war, PTSD, we now call it, was trench, was uh, uh, shell shock then. He suffered two crashing nervous breakdowns, one in 1932, 1933, the other in 1947, and decades of clinical depression. Um, I once talked to a woman who was a, really an, an, an astonishing woman. She was the wife of a harrow master. And uh, she had traveled the Middle East alone, you know, on camels. And she went to visit David Jones once, and she was really angry because she went to see him in Harrow in his room, and he sat there utterly silent, and she asked him questions, tried to initiate conversation. Nothing. Didn't even speak to her. So she thought, you know, she took it personally and thought, he did, doesn't like me anymore. What the hell is this? He was depressed. He was clinically depressed. He couldn't speak. Um, so if you think you've got it hard, Think of David Jones, who produced two of the greatest long poems in, liter in English literature, for sure, who produced fantastic paintings. Um, but his paintings, not his engravings, they're easy to see. He's a master of design. Those engravings, within two seconds, you can see these are marvelous. But his paintings balance between unity and chaos. And the result of that is a sense of movement and freedom that he deliberately tried to achieve. Um, but the paintings take a long time to see. Most of us look at, judge a painting within three seconds. Uh, a David Jones painting takes longer. And Jim Ede, who was a friend of David Jones, uh, who was the author of The Savage Messiah. They made a movie of it, the, the story of Gaudier Breschka, the sculpture. 
Jim Ede um, promoted David Jones from about 1927 and got him involved and in, incorporated into the Seven and Five Society. In 1932, David Jones was outselling every other member of the Seven and Five Society, including Ben Nicholson and Henry Moore. And then he crashed. And he went to a neurologist who, and he told him, when I try to paint, I feel paralyzing fear. So the neurologist said, don't paint. And so he stopped. And that, that ended ten year, for 10 years. Then he, then he found the same happened to him when he tried to write. So he went to the same neurologist who said, don't write. And he couldn't do that. So he, he went to Bowdenhouse Clinic, got a, an eclectic psychi psychologist, psychiatrist named Bill Stevenson, who was basically a Freudian. And he said, if you f feel paralyzing fear when you try to write or paint, you must write and paint. The only response to fear is counterattack. You know, you can't give in to fear. If you do, fear gets stronger. And if you want to try this out yourself, climb a ladder until you're afraid and stay there and the fear will diminish. Climb another step, fear comes up again, and it diminishes. But if you give in to fear, fear builds its muscles on that. Um, anyway, this man Stevenson started Jones in his later stage, was, was really partly responsible for the writing of the Anathemata. Stevenson, oh, I, I, I know too much. Uh, Stevenson um, is responsible for David Jones making his great flower and chalice paintings and his fantastic painted inscriptions, which is a form David Jones um, cr created, discovered, originated. So at the end of the biography, I say that David Jones is probably, well, maybe our the greatest native British modernist and a reviewer objected, said, what about Virginia Woolf? I mean, for God's sakes, what's wrong with you? Well, I didn't want to mention Virginia Woolf at the end of a biography of David Jones. Um, but I thought of her. And I think literary people who, by and large, can't see intelligently, and they don't know it would rate Virginia Woolf higher than David Jones. But if you have a sense of visual art, this makes David Jones comparable to Virginia Woolf, at the very least. They're both, uh, Virginia Woolf has, is a more gifted writer. She has an easier style. Why? Because David Jones was right brain, a spatial right hemispheric thinker. And he spoke gropingly and tentatively, when you, when you talk to him, as someone who visited him knows, uh, as I experienced too. And I think I share a bit of that same problem speaking. Um, so why is in parenthesis so difficult? I think the reason why is originates in David Jones' home on leave during the Great War, being asked, what's it like out there? What's it really like? 
and he would try to explain, try to tell, try to describe, but they would never understand. And this was really frustrating for him every time he was home on leave. And so I think, in parenthesis, is the answer to the question. What's unfamiliar to us cannot be stated. It can only be experienced. And what he does in, in parenthesis is provide the experience of being at war. Uh, I know it's an imaginative experience. Um, and he does it through lyric immediacy, uh, through showing and not telling, through enlisting the reader as a, an infantry person, man or woman. And what that means is defamiliarity, what the Russian formalists called defamiliarity, which just means new experience. There's nothing conventional, there's nothing tame about in parenthesis, once you get to the end of part two. And I'll, I'll read you a section um, from in parenthesis. You have some quotes on the paper uh, that was provided for you. There are two quotes from the Anathemata, which would be fun to read, but this isn't the time. From in parenthesis, there are three quotes. One is the thing I'm going to read to you now as an example of this defamiliarity and the experiencing for the first time something without being told what it is. Um, the second we're not going to read, it's Mr. Jenkins's death. Uh, if you email me, I'll send you David Jones reading that section. It, 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 it is a thoroughgoing evocation of the death of Oliver in the Song of Roland. Um, and then the f part three is uh, a quite beautiful juxtaposition of um, human and vegetable fertility being annihilated by machine gun fire. So I, I want to give you an example of this defamiliarity, and, and this is part one. Uh, the, the first quote, and I'll set it up first. Um, John Ball is the stand-in for David Jones. Whenever I asked Jones, did this happen to you? Whatever happened to Ball had happened to him. He always said yes. Um, so John Ball is approached by Lieutenant Jenkins, who's a sweet, lovely man who doesn't care at all about rules. And, um, or class differences, apparently. Certainly not differences in rank. He asks Jones if he has a match. Not Jones, Ball. Ball gives him the, bat, the box of matches. And Jenkins lights it and hands him back the matches. Jones said, officers never gave you back the matches. So Jenkins was quite lovely. And, um, and he said thanks, and Jones Ball says thanks or something. What he doesn't do is address him as you address an officer by saying, sir. Jenkins doesn't care. But Sergeant Snell observes this breach of order, and he starts haranguing Ball on a proper way to address an officer. 
Then Snell suddenly falls silent. And this is Ball. He stood alone on the stones. His mess tin spilled at his feet. Out of the vortex, rifling the air, it came. Bright, brass-shod, Pandoran, with all filling, screaming, the howling crescendos, up-piling, snapped. The universal world, breath-held, one half-second, a bludgeoned stillness. Then the pent violence released a consummation of all burstings out, all sudden uprendings and writhings through, all taking out events, all barrier breaking, all unmaking, pernitric begetting, the dissolving and splitting of solid things, in which unearthing aftermath, John Ball picked up his mess tin and hurried within, ashen, huddled, waited in a dismal straw. Behind E-Battery, 50 yards down the road, a great many mangolds, uprooted, pulped, congealed with chemical earth, spattered and made slippery the rigid boards leading to the emplacement. The sap of vegetables slobbered the spotless breech block of number three gun. You're not told that a shell exploded in the near vicinity. You experience it. And one of the, I think the great poetry of darkness and night is part three of in parenthesis where they're going into the trenches. And it's punctuated by very lights and uh, by a flashlight but mostly it's sound and touch and the passing of messages. And suddenly the barbed wire shines and other things shine, the butt heels of rifles. And you realize the moon has come out from behind clouds. But not, you're not told it. You're experiencing it. You're experiencing it. And this is a kind of lyric immediacy that makes for authentic new experience. And the authenticity of, of in parenthesis is uh, really astonishing. There's nothing like it in the literature of war, I think. Um, in parenthesis has the full registry of the language used, Cockney slang, songs. I think it is the Ulysses of poetry, if you consider it poetry. Although Ulysses is a flawed, aesthetically flawed work, unless you find some way to admire that appalling chapter uh, called Oxen in the Sun, of the Sun. Uh, but I won't go on, on to Ulysses. Ulysses has great writing in it, but in parenthesis is a perfect work of art. Justice, by the way, Portrait of the Artist, at least in my view, is a perfect novel. I mean, there's just nothing wrong with it. And it's, it's better than having nothing wrong with it, of course. Um, art is 
and experience. Well, why do we read, 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 or look at art? It's because we're interested in beauty and truth. And there's more truth about the war, and in parenthesis, than anywhere else. And it's not just about this war. Part of the theme of in parenthesis, part of, part of its thematic meaning, its truth, is that there's a continuity between the Great War and all other previous wars. And it doesn't stop there. I knew, um, I know still uh, a US Marine who was a veteran of the Vietnam War who counseled PTSD victims. Um, and he began in 1970 doing this. And when he began, some of his clients, or whatever they were, were veterans of the Great War. He said, these people, most of them, had elementary school educations at most. And he would read them passages from in parenthesis, and they would say, uh, right on. He has it down. And John said um, that the truth of in parenthesis was the truth of our war. Um, Jones was aware of the differences. I'm, I'm thinking of that appalling chapter in The Great War in Modern Memory by Paul Fussell, where he, he calls in parenthesis an honorable failure, because uh, in parenthesis opens up the possibility of heroism. And this is denied by Fussell on what grounds, I'd like to know. Uh, he thinks that David Jones, by referring to romance ennobles war. And yet, the romances David Jones refers to are the Tortruest, the monster of Welsh legend that destroys most of Britain. Um, the Battle of Camlin that brought down Celtic Britain. The Battle of Catrice at which um, a hundred Welshmen who were raised together, who knew each other since they were boys, were annihilated. Um, and all the way back to the, the, the fall of Troy. How this, these romance references a noble, a noble war, I would like to know. Um, David Jones read a, a book by John Silken based largely on an interview Silken did with Jones, in which Silken blames Jones for um, this Homeric, this heroic strain in in parenthesis. And Paul Hills, who was a friend of mine, was visiting David Jones at the, at the time. And Jones threw the book across the room and said, well, it, what we were doing in the trenches was a hell of a lot more heroic than, than stumbling around Camberwell Art School was. <laughs> because for Jones, heroism wasn't great deeds. Hero, heroism was a, a virtue. It's courage, patience, love, kindness. And that makes all kinds of sense. And um, I, I, are there any questions so far? Um, I could read you a bit about his experience in the war from the biography. I hope this isn't deadly. 
1917, when he came back from recuperating from being wounded at the Somme in the Battle of the Assault on Mehmet's Woods, um, the frightfulness of artillery fire now exceeded even that at the Somme. Dawn bombardments were routine, followed by irregular shelling, often after long periods of quiet. On the 17th of June, I should say a battalion is about 400 men, and I think a company is about 50 men. Okay, so you should know that. On the 17th of June, heavy shelling took enormous casualties. 30 killed, 60 wounded. Shelling on the 22nd of June caused what the battalion diarist calls a great amount of damage to trenches and personnel. Artillery was now, after the sum, more accurate, and its main target not opposing artillery as before the sum, but infantrymen in the trenches. In addition to increasing casualties, increased shelling meant constant repairing of collapsed trenches, digging them out, filling and stacking sandbags, installing fresh revetments. On the 23rd of June, huddled in a dugout with others, Jones endured seven hours and 15 minutes of continuous shelling. On this occasion, he was unable to keep a candle wick lit. The, the earth shook so drastically. Even veterans of later wars find it hard to imagine enduring such intense artillery fire so often for so long. If accurate, the first shells caught men exposed in the trenches. Realizing this was not an isolating, isolated shelling, survivors scurried into dugouts. Despite its roof of timber, corrugated iron, sandbags, and covering earth, a dugout directly hit, crashed like a matchbox. A near miss could bury men alive. Men cringed with each near burst, sharing blank anticipation. The near burst on burst of howitzer HE, that means high explosive, of a heavy caliber left Jones shaken and aching and made the sharp, brittle detonation of lesser artillery seen by comparison, quote, trivial. In a light bombardment, one shell a minute landed in the immediate vicinity. A heavy bombardment involved one field gun for every 10 yards under fire and one heavy gun for every 20 yards, so that a shell landed in a company sector of 50 men every two or three seconds. The bigger shells launched geysers of mud, sandbags, rocks, and sometimes gore hundreds of yards into the air. Gigantic exclamation marks, hugely cratering the earth more dangerous over a wider area was shrapnel, which arrived with approximately every four heavy howitzer shells 
bursting like an oversized grenade in a compact cloud of thick, slowly diffusing dark smoke. Then, suddenly, quiet, in which you heard the moaning of men, the screaming of rats, the buzzing of flies, and in the reserve line, the cries of, or groans of terrified or wounded horses. Five, 10, 15 minutes, then a shrieking explosion and another and the barrage descended again. In a concentrated bombardment, the interval between explosions disappeared. Underground in a dugout, the roar resembled an amplified tropical thunderstorm. Outside, the raging was beyond noise, an oppression you shrank from. Down below, the earth shook up above. It heaved like the surface of a sea in a storm. In dugouts, men stricken with claustrophobia were restrained from rushing into the maelstrom. In his experience, Jones's experience, there were, quote, chaps who fear being caught underground and those who fear most the nakedness of above ground. He was among those for whom the dugout was an enwombing safety. A prolonged barrage was like being tied to a post while someone repeatedly swung a sledgehammer at your head. The hammerhead whirls forward, slamming if it misses into the post inches from your skull, sending wood splinters flying. The continual experience, day after day, of even light bombardments was enervating. A numbness like shock set in, and exhaustion buried fear, leaving a sadness that lengthened into malaise. Sentries could not, as a rule, shelter from a bombardment in dugouts, but had to remain in the open trench, watching through periscopes for an attack. On many occasions, Jones stood sentry during a barrage, seeing through the looking glass the leaping flames of explosions transform the wasteland into a Turner seascape. It was not unusual for men to emerge from dugouts after a barrage to find a sentry crushed under earth or blasted open or sitting still, his life surgically taken by a shell casing splinter. Life by, by 1918, life in the trenches was even worse because of uh, a series of salvos that were called crashes in which the entire German artillery, and the British did this too, fired all at once and then stopped, catching people exposed, killing many more men than a continuous barrage would. And the casualty, the great casualty of these crashes was quiet itself, which was now always a threat to the basic equanimity we take for granted. Except while on leave 
in divisional reserve or when with the, the survey where, where Jones uh, was a, a fire spotter for artillery and map maker. Jones had experienced some enemy shelling daily and an extensive bombardment on average twice a week for the past three years. Over this time, but especially now, quiet became horrifically pregnant. A major contributor to his later emotional suffering would be years of artillery fire culminating with these crashes. Um, I want to just end by saying Jones had more experience in the trenches than anyone else associated with the war among war poets. He spent um, three years in the army, but he, he spent 117 weeks actually in the trenches on the front line. That's at least two months longer than Edmund Blunden, who was attributed with having the greatest war experience. Why I mention this is because it, it, um, it partly explains how, in parenthesis, could be so rich in authenticity. Um, in parenthesis covers the first seven months of his time in the trenches, culminating with the Battle of the Somme, but it's fed by all his later experience, too. Um, I could say a little bit more about in parenthesis. Um, there are two kinds of form in the poem. One is teleological movement from beginning to end, and there are two sections of that. The first section is the movement of the troops into trenches. The second section is the movement down to the area of the sum and into battle. And the culmination of that double movement is really the queen of the woods, which is, I think, a lyrical high point of modern literature. But you, I read it to you, but no, it's no good. You have to have read the whole of in parenthesis. You have to get to know sweet Lieutenant Jenkins and that shit Lily White, who was a stickler for rules. Uh, the Queen of the Woods bestows garlands, which in the language of flowers precisely identifies their greatest virtues. That swine, Lily, Lily White, gets daisies to his chain. You'd hardly credit it. Daisies are symbolic of love. And Die Greatcoat, she can't find him anywhere, Die Greatcoat uh, is, is occupies the center of the poem, and he's, he's the center of a concentric spatial centricity, which is the second kind of form. He occupies the middle of part four, and he's bracketed by parenthetical uh, references to stand two at the beginning of the day, stand two at the end of the day, machine gun fire at the beginning of the day, machine gun fire at the end of the day, so that there's this spatial imaginative form which comes from David Jones as a visual artist. And it emphasizes Di Greycoat, who's the universal soldier. Um, he's every man as a soldier. And he implicitly is a riddle. Um, he gives boasts in which he claims to have been in prior engagements and then prior historical battles, including Cressy. Um, uh, and ultimately, I was in Michael's trench, 
in the war in heaven. Well, at least he was on the side of the good angels. So implicitly, the question is, what is he as a, as a, a soldier? And I think the answer to that, I hope you read it for yourself and you decide, but I think the answer to that is that a soldier is a tool or a weapon and is essentially innocent. Um, what is a soldier as a man? Die says, I trowel the head of blessed bed, blessed bran under the ground as a preventative to expeditionary war. Uh, the dying god figure from ancient Celtic legend. So, and at the end he says, I am the single horn purifying the poison stream at Helium. So as a man, and also as an infantryman, the soldier, the archetypal soldier, is a focus of, it's your only hope in goodness. Your only hope for goodness. And then he says at the end of his boast, you ought to ask why, what's the meaning of this? Because you don't ask why, the land is waste. And so the reader is put in the position of Perjure or Percival in the Grail Quest, whose only hope for restoring the wasteland is to ask the question when he sees the dripping spear. What is this? What's the meaning of this? And the question is not about war. It's about life. David Jones writes in his preface, I did not intend this to be a war book. It just happens to be about war. If war has no meaning, neither does life. Now, one of the things David Jones was upset with was some critics saying that the, the death of soldiers ha sacrificially partakes in the, the death of Jesus as a redeeming um, force. Jones said, what a bunch of nonsense. Theologically, that's idiotic. And it is a pietistic sentimentality. James Joyce defines sentimentality as emotion without responsibility. There is no meaning to the suffering and death of anybody. I hate to bear that news, but if you've suffered, you already know. What, if there's any meaning in life, it's how we suffer. It's in the goodness of the sufferer and the person taking care of that sufferer. Um, so when the queen of the woods bestows garlands, um, Ulrich gets myrtle wand. Ulrich is a German. He gets the myrtle which is carried by initiates at Eleusis who experience life after death in Greek mythology, Greek ritual, religion. Um, the queen of the woods is the answer to die, great coats, boast. What's the meaning of life? To the riddle in his boast. And Jones is saying that the, the meaning of life is love, kindness, patience, courage, perseverance, the heroism that he experienced in his comrades in arms, and I'm sure displayed himself, and that he did all the rest of his 
life. So, is there any questions about in parentheses or anything else? Yes, please. Can you say a little bit uh, about his Welshness, uh, which is obviously a major factor in his mental and artistic uh, outcome? Oh, yes, certainly, uh, about his Welshness. Uh, I have no hat in this ring as a Canadian <laughs> of Irish-German descent. Um, <laughs> David Jones loved Wales as only a non-Welshman could. Um, a, a real Welshman knows all what's wrong with Wales um, and has a mix. That's why it's, it's easier being engaged than it is being married. Um, uh, David Jones identified with Wales. He loved his father, his, Welsh, his Northwest father, singing Welsh. He visited Wales from the age of eight, uh, once a year, every year, every other year. Um, he identified with Wales. He refused to answer to the name Walter from the age of eight or nine, which was his baptismal name, because it was Anglo-Saxon. Instead, he chose his middle name, David. Um, he, is, he learned that his grandfather forbade his father from speaking Welsh, his Welsh grandfather, whom he met once. And the name for Welsh for grandfather is Tide, I agree, I think. And uh, they were at a uh, public dining table in a, a place where they were, the family was staying on the, by the sea. And David, who was four years old, said Tide was a bloody old bastard. And his father whisked him away and said, I know you don't know the meaning of those words which you've learned from crude boys, but you have to be punished. And he told him the story of Elisha being teased by young boys and calling down the bears which Yahweh sent to devour the boys. And David said, Tide was a bloody old bastard and so was Jehovah. And, and so he was spanked. And, and when he told that story, uh, a young woman who was there, I was visiting, said, were you an intractable child? And he thumped his chest and said, no. But in, with something that mattered so much to me, I couldn't hold back. Um, he tried to join the Welsh horse. He joined the Welsh London Battalion. But... Um, when I say he was not a Welshman, I know he's often said to be Welsh or a Welshman. Um, when T.S. Eliot called him a Welshman in the preface, the first draft of the preface to the Anathema that he wrote in 1960, David Jones had him correct that to a Londoner of Welsh English descent. Um, C.S. Lewis, I mean, uh, sorry, uh, Saunders Lewis, who's the great Welsh patriot, um, and literary figure told David Jones, you are an English poet. So if you want to say that he's Welsh, you have to be like Julian. You have to be like, uh, oh, that ancient theologian. Never mind. You have to also say he's not Welsh at the same time. That's what I would say. 
Do you want to reply to that? <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, what? I was thinking more of the, his use of Welsh myth and legend oh, and oh, language. There's a lot of actual okay. Welsh language in the film. Yes, you're quite right. That really puts people off. And it put off his friends, Rennie Hague and Harmon Greiswood. Why? Because none of us enjoy experiencing our own ignorance. And um, there's actually quite very little of it in his poetry. People notice it for the same reason we notice things that are not there in our lives. Um, there's very little Welsh stuff in his... If you visited him, he could go on for hours about medieval Welsh history. And he wrote a 70-page letter to his friend Griswood uh, from his own head, delineating the history that led up to the death of Llewellyn in 1282. So I think Jones had a little bit of awareness of his audience and knew that I, while well stuff meant a lot to him uh, that, that most people didn't know. But in, in parenthesis, there is that at the end of part three, he, he talks about Predary on, on one, and he supplies in his notes all you need to know about that Welsh poem by Annihilate. So I would say the best policy is when you come across something Welsh, just keep reading. <laughs> you know? You, you had a question. I think we have time for one or two more questions. Here you go. Thank you. Thank you for such a vivid account. Um, I wonder if you feel able to comment on his conversion to Roman Catholicism it's always, from my very superficial knowledge of him, it's always seemed a very improbable thing, and yet it seems to have been very sincere. Improbable not least because it seems to have grown out of a, a rather romantic episode in the war when he saw a, a mass being conducted mm -hmm. in the field. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you feel able to contextualize? Yeah, that, thank you. That's a very interesting question. It's also improbable because David Jones was David Jones. He couldn't make up his mind about anything. Um, he couldn't, he, he, he was engaged for years to Petra Gill and he couldn't set a date for the wedding. That's one reason she left him for another man. Um, not only that, but his, his family background, his father was deeply evangelical, absolutely abhorred Roman Catholicism. And when Jones poped in 1921, David, uh, his father, wrote him a, le a letter addressed to Toady, which was the family nickname, uh, saying you've gone over to the Pope who's the friend of assassins and all that stuff. Uh, but David's mother was influenced by the Oxford movement when she started to be a governess in Oxford, I don't know what years, but uh, all the great Tractarians were still alive. And she, while well, she, sort of withheld and contained her high Anglicanism uh, for the sake of her husband. She was a sort of high church fifth column in the family. And she kept David home uh, as a companion. And whenever David was sick or thought he might be ill, she, he said, I had virtually no education. He stayed home 
His sister and brother were never allowed to do that, so she talked to him a lot. And they had, uh, I think, an, even an unhealthy close relationship. Except it's been good for literature and art. Um, so I think he was primed. I remember um, when he was an adolescent, during the reading of the Creed, in his, um, I think, a higher church ceremony than his father would have presided over, he would drop his handkerchief in order to kneel, to genuflect, at incarnatus est, and it was made flesh. So he also remembered, and I think this is key to the anathemata, this is key to the meaning of the anathemata. When he was knee-high, he was at his mother's and a Quaker doctor had made a house call and was leaving the uh, front door. And his mother said, tell me, doctor, why do Quakers not have sacraments? And the doctor said, but Mrs. Jones, surely all of life is a sacrament. And he never forgot that. And I think that is the key that unlocks the anathemata. Uh, let me just describe the anathemata a little bit for you. It begins with the elevation of the host after it's consecrated at a mass. The whole of the anathemata really is a daydream of someone at mass. Um, yes, five minutes? I can't believe it. And, and then it ends with the um, elevation of the cup seven seconds later, but 240 pages later. Um, now, what he did, you can see this in the manuscripts, is he, he had a, a seven-page text which had those elements in it. He split it in half, and then he filled it with new material, split it in half, filled it with new material, split it in half, filled it with new material. And, the res and at the very center of it, of eight breakings and resumptions in chiasmic sequence so that they're in order, um, the breaking and the resumption, the breaking off of a voyage and the resumption of that voyage, for example. Or in the, for the lady of the pool in the center, she talks about a lover, goes on to something else, then she resumes talking about that lover. There are eight concentric, I would call them not parentheses, but circles because of the continuity of the, the consecration of the mass. And at the center of it is a lyric celebration of the Paschal events, which the Eucharist represent theologically. Now, what that means is the Eucharist, which is the sacrament of the presence of God, is contained by everything. With the, the anathema really is about everything, including sex. Everything except raising children, about which David Jones knew nothing. Um, so the, the, it, the Eucharist is contained by everything, and it contains everything. And what that means is that everything in human life has absolute maximum significance. Are there any other questions? How many do we have any? Yes. Perhaps uh, one last one. Just in case, 
It's about, your, about you, you being a biographer, because I read biographies much to my family's annoyance sometimes. But some, some biographies, and you've done it to us today, you make such a rich picture. You, you help us understand the world in a, in, in a different way. And yet there are other biographies which don't capture us at all. And I, I just wonder what it is about biographies which sometimes make us help us paint a bigger picture of the world and a better understanding. Well, I think the subject. I think David Jones was so interesting. And I think he was under so much pressure to find meaning. And in his own life, he found an alternative family in the family of Gill, family of Jameed. And I think in the, in the church, and this began with his experience in the war, seeing these infantrymen uh, around stacks of munition, ammunition while a priest was celebrating mass by candlelight. But for the rest of it, apart from Jones is the reason, I, I can tell you that I tried to f talk to and look at everything I could. And I, I, it's a shameful admission, but before writing and researching this book, I had ne I'd read um, Eminent Victorians by Strachey, but I'd never read a biography. So I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but I think the real reason why it's important is because of its subject. You know, I, can you imagine writing a biography of E.E. E. Cummings or of uh, uh, oh, the man who, who wrote Whitson Weddings? What's his name again? <laughs> Philip, yeah, who's I actually love his poetry, but what is there? in him for people, <laughs> except a reflection of our own cynicism. Anyway, I guess we're done. If you have any questions after, I'll be here. Uh, and thank you very much for coming. You were just lovely. <laughs>